As we approach the preaching of God's Word, uh, our Old Testament reading is in 1 Kings chapter 10, verses 23 through 25. I remind you that this is God's inspired and inerrant Word. 1 Kings chapter 10, beginning at verse 23 and reading through 25. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. They brought every man his gift, articles of silver and gold, garments, weapons, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. Revelation chapter 17, verses... 15 through 18 is our text. It's our sermon text this morning. We'll begin reading at verse 7. Revelation 17, verse 7. The angel said to me, Why do you wonder? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the ten horns. The beast that you saw was and is not and is about to come up out of the abyss and go to destruction. And those who dwell on the earth whose name has not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will wonder when they see the beast that he was and is and is not and will come. Here's the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. And they are seven kings. Five have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must remain for a little while. The beast, which was and is not, is himself also an eighth, and is one of the seven, and he goes to destruction. The ten horns which you saw are ten kings, who have not yet received a kingdom, but they receive authority as kings with the beast for one hour. These have one purpose, and they give their authority and power to the beast. These will wage war against the lamb, and the lamb will overcome them, because he is Lord of lords and king of kings, and those who are with him are the called and chosen and faithful. And he said to me, The waters which you saw... Where the harlot sits are the peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw and the beast, these will hate the harlot and will make her desolate and naked and will eat her flesh and will burn her up with fire. For God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose by having a common purpose, and by giving their kingdom to the beast until the words of God will be fulfilled. The woman whom you saw is a great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. This is God's gracious word, able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Let's go to God's throne of grace once again to seek his face on 
uh, for the preaching and hearing of his word. Let's pray. Lord our God, you have said that your word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing as far as the division of soul and spirit of both joint and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. We bring our hearts before you, O God. We ask that you would be pleased to divide our hearts, to pierce our hearts with your word through the operation of the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer of Jesus Christ. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. If you're visiting with us today, we have been uh, working our way through the book of Revelation and having come to chapter 17, we've dealt with the first 14 verses. We're uh, finishing up in this 17th chapter today. Uh, Revelation 17 begins with one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls of wrath showing John the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, whose description, I have argued, identifies her as apostate Jerusalem. The great harlot, here in chapter 17, Babylon the great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth, is apostate Jerusalem. The scarlet beast uh, that the woman sits on is full of blasphemous names, which fits the description of the sea beast in chapter 13 and verse 1, representing, we have said, the Roman Empire, but has seven heads and ten horns, like Satan, the great red dragon, in chapter 12 and verse 3. In other words, the scarlet beast is a composite It's a composite beast comprising the attributes both of the Roman Empire and of of Satan, uh, the devil himself. So so it seems that uh, chapter 17 and verse 3 is uh, a reference to apostate Jerusalem's alliance with Satan and with the Roman Empire. We could state that another way. We could say that uh, it, there is this alliance between Satan and his agencies in the false teachers of Jerusalem, uh, the, the, uh, the beast that we have uh, uh, considered as well here. We've considered the beast from the sea and the beast from the earth. The beast from the earth or the beast from the land uh, is apostate Israel. Uh, the false prophet uh, elsewhere called here in uh, Revelation. And both the Roman Empire uh, corporately and individually through their Caesars uh, represent the beast uh, as an agency of Satan and uh, the false teachers are an agency of Satan. They, the, this, um, uh, this, the, the false teachers of, of Jerusalem are the ones who are uh, causing the, uh, the people of, of Judea to worship the beast, to worship Satan, to worship Rome, to, to enter into Caesar worship. 
Revelation 7 through uh, 17, 7 to 18 comprises uh, the angel's explanation of this vision to John of the, the woman who sits on the scarlet beast. An explanation of the mystery of the woman and the beast that, that carries her. Uh, we read here in verse 7 of chapter 17. And we noted last week uh, that the first part of the angel's explanation in verses 17, uh, four, or 7 through 14 has the doctrine of predestination written across the face of it. And that while there are two parts to the doctrine of predestination in Scripture, election and retribution, reprobation, that in verses 17 to 13, uh, the angel's explanation lands on uh, this aspect of reprobation. God's passing by uh, uh, from the foundation of the world, passing by uh, those who are condemned, pre-condemned, to uh, destruction, and that uh, God has predestined rebels to destruction. Verse 8, Satan is about to come up out of the abyss of destruction along with uh, the unbelieving Jews, those who dwell on the land whose names have not been written in the book of life. Verses 9 through 13, Rome, the city on seven hills, and Uh, The nations that are allied or subject to Rome are all bound for destruction. Why? Because God has predestined this. On the ground of, or or on the basis of sinful rebellion, God determined by his eternal eternal decree to, to pass by and condemn some to everlasting destruction. Verses 15 to 18, uh, the angel explains that God's predestinating decree encompasses the act, the, uh, all of the actions uh, that the nations will carry out to destroy Jerusalem, the great harlot. So we've seen that God has predestined rebels to destruction. We've seen that God has predestined his people to triumph with Christ, those who, verse 14, are with him who are called and chosen and faithful. And today, we're going to see that God has predestined nations to execute his purpose. And we'll look at three things here. Uh, The waters symbolize, the waters here in verse 15, symbolize the nations of the world. Secondly, the nations execute God's decree. And thirdly, Jerusalem has a kingdom over all the nations. The waters, in the first place, symbolize the rebellious nations of the world. In verse 15, the angel explains the significance of the waters where the harlot sits. Remember, uh, we, uh, we find here in verse 1, the angel shows the apostle John the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters. 
And now uh, we are shown what those waters mean. Now, we said, as we were uh, in our exposition of, of verse 1, that, uh, that uh, Babylon was a city of many waters, that the river Euphrates run, runs through, and uh, so uh, that's one of the things that's being depicted in the many waters, uh, uh, the Euphrates and its uh, canals, uh, especially in, in uh, ancient Babylon. But, but here the angel explains to us uh, by a fourfold designation, peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. That is the world. The many waters represent the whole world. The identification of the ungodly, rebellious nations of the world is one familiar to the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament prophets in Isaiah 17, 12 to 13. The prophet wrote of the uproar of many peoples who roar like the roaring of the seas and the rumbling nations who rush on like the rumbling of mighty waters. But he will rebuke them and they will flee away and be chased like chaff in the mountains before the wind or like whirling dust before a gale. And then in chapter 57 of Isaiah's prophecy, verses 20 and 21, he writes, The wicked are like a tossing sea. For it cannot be quiet. Its waters toss up a refuse and mud. There is no peace for the wicked, says my God. So Jerusalem can be portrayed as sitting on many waters. Chapter 17, 1, seated on the nations here, verse 15, because of the great and pervasive influence that the Jews had in all parts of the Roman Empire. How so? There were synagogues in every city. The Jews were everywhere. That's the diaspora. That's the, the Jews were spread out uh, to the nations, in part to be leaven, to be salt and light into the world. The extent of, of their colonization is apparent by the record of, of Pentecost. On the day of Pentecost, in Acts 2, verse 5, which tells us there were Jews staying in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And so the nations are at war with Christ. And because they're at war with Christ, they're at war with Christ's people. That's the way it worked then. That's the way it works now, isn't it? The nations are at war with God. The nations are at war with God's people. They stand contrary to God's people everywhere, in all places, without exception, in the world in which we live. Isn't that true? In their war against Christ, the raging nations turn against the harlot Jerusalem because of their connection with Christ. The angel presents this enmity toward the harlot with a fourfold description. 
Rome and its allies will hate the harlot and make her desolate, will make her naked, will eat her flesh, and will burn her up with fire. Jerusalem had committed harlotry with the pagan nations, but in A.D. 70, they turned against her and destroyed her, making her desolate. Very same word is used in Christ's prophecy of the destruction of Jerusalem in the Olivet Discourse recorded in Matthew 24, verse 15, Matthew 13, verse 14, Luke 21, verse 20, which is the New Testament version of the Old Testament abomination of desolation, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem. The description of Jerusalem's gruesome end, her gruesome destruction, includes elements of covenant curse that God had declared would come upon his wife because she had played the harlot. Ezekiel 16, verses 37 to 41, for example, I will gather all your lovers whom you took, in whom you took pleasure. I will also give you into the hands of your lovers. They will tear down your shrines, demolish your high places, strip you of your clothing, and will leave you naked and bare. They will burn your houses with fire and execute judgments upon you. It's important to understand that the beast destroys Jerusalem as a part of his war against Christ. The Roman leader's motive in destroying the temple wasn't only to put down the Jewish rebellion, but to obliterate Christianity. History tells us that Titus himself, who conquered Jerusalem, thought the temple ought to be destroyed in order to uh, thoroughly subvert the religion of the Jews and of the Christians recognizing that while these religions were contrary to each other, the Christians had sprung up from the root of the Jews, and that if the root were destroyed, the offshoot would also perish. The beast thought he could kill the harlot, the false bride, and the true bride of Jesus Christ, the remnant of Israel, and the Gentiles who had believed with one fatal stroke. But when the dust settled, apostate Jerusalem lay in ruins while the church was revealed as the new and glorious temple, God's eternal dwelling place. That leads us to our second point. The waters in the first place we've said symbolize the rebellious nations of the world. Secondly, those nations, the angel is speaking of here, those rebellious nations execute God's decree, execute God's ordained purpose. For the angel says to John in verse 17, God has put it into the hearts of these nations to execute his purpose 
by having a common purpose, by giving their kingdom to the beast. So the sovereign God does not stand by helplessly, wringing his hands, worrying about what's going on uh, in the nations in the time of the Apostle John when the book of Revelation was written, worrying about what's going to happen to Jerusalem as he watches the, the holy city being destroyed. Rather, all of these events were predestined for God's glory. The Westminster Shorty Catechism asks, what are the decrees of God? And it answers, the the decrees of God are his eternal purpose according to the counsel of his will, whereby for his own glory he has foreordained whatsoever comes to pass. What the nations are doing, God has foreordained. They are carrying out his purpose. God has put it in their hearts to execute his purpose. Obviously, it's a sin for these kings to give their kingdoms to the beast. It's a sin for these uh, kings to ally themselves to the beast, uh, which means they've allied themselves with both the Roman Empire and Satan. It's a sin for them to do so. Uh, it's, it's an act of rebellion toward God because the Roman Empire is in rebellion against God and Satan is in rebellion against God. And so, so some will object that this makes God the author of sin if he has ordained this. The obvious answer to such an objection is that the text says that God placed this evil purpose into their hearts while at the same time we are assured, James chapter 1, that God is not the author of evil, and we are assured, for example, Psalm 147 verse 15, that the Lord is righteous in all his ways. And if we believe the Bible, we have to believe both of these things are true. That God put this in their hearts to carry out his purpose, and that he is righteous in all his ways, and he's not the author of evil. We must hold firmly to two seemingly contradictory points. First, that God isn't responsible for sin, he's not the author of sin, and second, nothing happens in spite of him or in opposition to his purpose. On this score, uh, the great theologian Cornelius Van Til wrote, and I realize this is quite deep because it plums the theology of, of knowledge, what we can know, what we can't know, but nevertheless, Van Til wrote, human knowledge can never be completely comprehensive knowledge. Every knowledge transaction has in it somewhere a reference point to God. Now, since God is not fully comprehensible to us, 
we are bound to come into what seems to be contradiction in our knowledge, in what God has revealed. But it's reconciled. While, it can't, while we can't intellectually, always intellectually reconcile things, it's reconciled in the mind of God. And we must believe what God has, has said in his word, even if it seems contradictory to us. To those who argue against uh, God's word in, in this regard, the biblical response is quite blunt in Romans 9, verses 20 to 21. On the, on the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does the potter have a right over the clay? Uh, does not, rather, the potter have a right over the, over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor and another vessel for dishonor? The great 4th century uh, theologian Augustine observed, it is therefore in the power of the wicked to sin, but that in sinning they do this or that is not in their power, but in God's who divides the darkness, regulates it, so that even what they do contrary to God's will is not fulfilled, except it be God's will. Here in verse 17, the whole purpose for the pagan king's wrath, for joining in conspiracy against both the bride and the harlot, for surrendering their kingdoms to the beast and receiving power for one hour with him, that is for a short time, is, is now revealed here in the last clause, God has, God has put it into their hearts to ex his, uh, execute his purpose until the words of God will be fulfilled. The curses of the covenant, Deuteronomy 28, were executed on Israel through the beast and the ten horns. The beast and the ten horns were instruments of God's wrath, as, as Christ had foretold in uh, the Mount of Olivet Discourse. Uh, the Mount Olivet Discourse, he said, Luke 21, 22, all things that were written would be fulfilled. The waters symbolize the rebellious nations of the world. The nations execute God's decree. And then thirdly, Jerusalem has a kingdom over the nations. Your particular English translation may uh, read something else. The, the New American Standard that I'm reading from reads, the woman, uh, verse 18, the, the one who, woman whom you saw is the great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Literally, this is, has a kingdom over the kings of the earth. In verse 18, uh, the angel identifies the harlot as the great city, which, uh, as we've seen, Revelation uses as a term for Jerusalem. Jerusalem is 
the great city, chapter 11, verse 8, where the Lord was crucified. Where was the Lord crucified? He was crucified in, uh, outside the city of Jerusalem. The angel says, this city, Jerusalem, has a kingdom over all the kings of the earth. It's perhaps this verse, more than any other, that has caused modern commentators to conclude against all other evidence to the contrary that the harlot is Rome, that what the angel is, uh, this, uh, what's being symbolized here in the harlot is, is Rome, the city of Rome, you know, the Roman Empire more broadly. If the city is Jerusalem, they ask, how can she wield this kind of power? How can she have worldwide political power? The answer is that the book of Revelation isn't about politics. It's about covenant. Because the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation, is about covenant. Jerusalem did reign over the nations. She did possess a kingdom that was above all nations of the world. How so? She had a covenantal priority over the kingdoms of the earth. Israel was a kingdom of priests. Exodus 19.6, and we read 1 Peter 2.9. Israel was a kingdom of priests exercising a priestly ministry of instruction and intercession on behalf of the nations of the world. When Israel was faithful to God, offering up sacrifices and petitions for the nations, faithful to call the nations to worship God, the world was at peace. When Israel broke the covenant, the world was in turmoil. The biblical record shows that as it went with Israel, so it went for the rest of the world. The, Gentiles nation, the Gentile nations recognized this. This was, this was perhaps uh, nowhere more evident uh, in the scriptures than in that passage that we read this morning in 1 Kings chapter 10. Listen, listen again to verses uh, 23 and 24. Actually, uh, in chapter 3 through chapter 10, Solomon's, uh, the glory days of Solomon's reign. Well, when Solomon exercised rule, exercised domain over uh, the nations of the earth. But he, uh, listen again to chapter 10, verses 20, 23 and 24. So King Solomon became greater than all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. All the earth was seeking the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put in his heart. This is true throughout the, uh, the, the Old Testament scriptures. Um, Psalm 86, all nations will come and worship before you. It's been many years now that I uh, that I, that I uh, as we were at our uh, 
one of our presbytery meetings uh, in Matthews, North Carolina, that, that one of our minister preached, ministers preached a sermon from the Psalms. And he argued that what, what's going on in the Psalms, when the Psalms references the nations, is that Israel is actually calling the nations, calling the nations to worship God. Uh, we see that, for example, in, in uh, Psalm 72 and, and uh, verse 11, where, where the Lord uh, has put it into the heart of, of, of Israel to call the nations. He commands them to call the nations to worship him. Uh, call all nations, the Lord says, to, uh, to, worship, to worship me. Uh, the ancient Jewish historian Josephus points out repeatedly that the nations had historically recognized the sanctity and the centrality of uh, Jerusalem and its temple. And yet, perverse, uh, perversely, what we see in the record of Old Testament revelation is that Israel per, uh, perversely sought alliance with other nations. They did so politically, uh, going to other nations instead of to God, uh, where they should have sought refuge, where they should have sought deliverance, going to the other nations, uh, going to Syria, going to, uh, to Egypt to, to seek help from, uh, from Egypt in their, in their uh, wars against the nations. And then the nations would seduce Israel into committing harlotry against her covenant vows. And when she did, the Lord would turn those nations themselves against Israel to destroy her. And that pattern was repeated over and over again until Israel's final excommunication in A.D. 70 when Jerusalem and the temple was destroyed. The desolation of the harlot was God's final sign that the kingdom had been transferred to the new Jerusalem, the church. Matthew 21, 43, Therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you, God says to the rebellious Jews, and given to a people producing the fruit of it. The kingdom over kingdoms will never again be possessed by national Israel. There is a new Jerusalem, and God has made his abode in the new Jerusalem in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as it goes in the new Jerusalem, the church, so it goes in the rest of the world. History shows that to be true as well. History shows that when the church has flourished, so has the rest of the world. The Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the Great Awakening of the 18th century, and the revivals that stem from the Great Awakening, all of these show that when things go well in the church of Jesus Christ, 
things go well in society in general, there's peace, there is kindness one to another. Now, there's not the kind of political turmoil that we see today. There's not rioting in the streets. Uh, There is not injustice being carried out throughout the world as we see it today. Because what God does in the church uh, radiates to the rest of the world in times of God's great blessing on the bride of Christ. And you must recognize the centrality of the church to the nations and to history. And we began our exposition of Revelation a long time ago. Uh, it's been, uh, end of this year, it'll be a year and a half that we've, been, that we've taken to, to get this far, uh, as far as we will by then in, in, in Revelation. But I want to remind you something I said in, in the introductory sermon to the book here. Uh, the, these visions, uh, the seven cycles of, of visions in, in Revelation, uh, have been very purposely laid out by the Holy Spirit as, he, as Christ, through his Spirit, brought these to uh, the Apostle John. And the very first vision is what? It's a vision of Christ in the church. And what that signifies is that the church of Jesus Christ is central. It's central to the history of the world. That God does what he does in the world on behalf of the church. And we must recognize where God has placed that priority. And because we recognize where God has placed that priority, we must also recognize the necessity of our influence on the nations through intercessory prayer. How did, how did Israel exercise its dominion over the kings of the earth? How did they exercise their dominion over the nations of the world? They did so through offering up sacrifices to God, And they did so through intercession. And we must be a people who pray for the nations of the world. Why? Because the nations are in God's heart. That's evident. If that's not evident to you, you need to read your Bible again. That the nations are on God's heart. And that we are called to pray for kings and all those who are in authority. And we're called to pray for the nations, and we are called to call the nations to worship God using our influence as, as uh, a kingdom of priests to carry the message of Christ to our co-workers and our neighbors and our friends and our family members. But we are to pray. We're to do so corporately.
Prayer for the nation should be the center of our corporate prayer meeting. That's a pattern that I have sought to uh, instill in this congregation over, over the years that I've been here is that our priority when we come together, that's why we have kingdom prayer on, on first Sunday of the month. That's why we don't pray for uh, all the individual needs, although those, although those are important as well, but, on, but on, on that first Sunday of the month, we pray. We have a, a time of kingdom prayer. We focus our prayers on, on the kingdom of God. And that means, too, as I've said to you, that we ought to be praying for the nations, for the kingdoms of the world individually, in our families, in family worship, individually. And that if you're not praying for the nations, you're not praying according to the will of God. Because that's what God tells us that we are to do. This is on God's heart. It's apparent, I hope, uh, from what we've seen of, of the angel's explanation that God's purposes among the nations uh, are clear, uh, that he's ordained these things, and that we ought to be in our corporate prayer meetings and in our prayer closets and in our family worship pleading for God's promises that all nations will come before him and worship him to give him honor and glory, that which he rightly deserves. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we give you praise as our God, the King who is exalted high, we once again, O oh Father, pray for the nations of the earth that you would bring them into submission. We pray uh, where in, in those nations who are uh, where uh, governments are attacking Christians, persecuting Christians, oppressing Christians, uh, we ask, O oh God, uh, that you would be pleased to bring salvation from the top down, that leaders would submit themselves to Christ and that they would begin to rule righteously. But if not, O oh Lord, uh, that you would take communist governments, uh, that you would take oppressive governments out of the way and bring about freedom for your people to worship you. And that, O oh Lord, you might bring about uh, the day that you have, uh, in which you have said all nations will come before you to worship you. All nations will bring their gifts before you. We ask, O oh Father, uh, that you would hear, hear our prayer. And we ask for Christ's sake. Amen.